This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, CPAC. It's not a topical analgesic or an elite cadre within Scientology. It is the Conservative Political Action Conference of the American Conservative Union, and it has been described as the conservative Woodstock, which is to say all the musical acts are shanana, and you can't drop the brown acid unless it's in a stream or river. Kellyanne Conway spoke at CPAC after being sidelined by the administration due to inaccuracies that are no longer fun and quirky like a hand-knit potholder but dangerous and inadequate, like a hand-knit fire extinguisher. So let's not break Kellyanne's silence. It is such a nice sound to meditate upon. Instead, we bring you the team of Reince Priebus, who's constantly on the news, but also, for a limited time only, Steve Bannon, who I don't believe has submitted to a broadcast interview from an actual journalist since the election. So here was Matt Schlapp, conservative consultant Matt Schlapp, former George W. Bush administration official. Yes, that Matt Schlapp, he was holding forth. He was the moderator among conservatives. And uh, he was asking the tough questions first to Reince. Uh, what do you like the most about him? Uh, <clears throat> Hold on, let him think. I, I, love, I love how many collars he wears. Uh, <laughs> interesting look. Yes. Yes, I have noticed this. Bannon is not just a garden variety slob. He's a very specific slob. He is a multi-layered slob. He almost always wears a t-shirt, and that's usually under two other shirts, the middle of which is also open. So he's wearing three shirts on most days, and two are collared. It's so weird. The dude is more layers than a Thomas Pynchon novel, specifically Gravity's Rainbow, the Werner Von Braun parts. Then when Steve was asked what he liked about Reince, Bannon said, Yeah, you know, I can run a little hot on occasions. Um, <laughs> well, maybe shed a layer, you onion. Zweibel in the original German, onion. The talk that they gave was mostly palaver. Reince couldn't get a sense of how Trump was doing until he left D.C. It was when I went home and got out of this town and I went back to Kenosha and I talked to my neighbor and I said, Bob, what do you think? And he goes, man, I really love that Trump. And I said, Sandy, Sandy, what do you think? She says, I'm, we're for Trump. And Bannon just casually dinged the media. And I think if you look at, you know, the opposition party and how they portrayed the campaign, how they portrayed the transition, and now they're portraying the administration, it's always wrong. But I did pick up on the fact that Bannon is still given to Breitbartian talking points that a lot of the assembled conservatives can't possibly agree with, like this. They're corporatist, globalist media that are adamantly opposed, adamantly opposed to an economic nationalist agenda like Donald Trump has. Well, the globalist part, 
does fit in with most conservative ideology. Uh, they're against multilateralism. They're pro-nativism. But what about the anti-corporate parts? That third guy on stage with them, the Matt Schlapp guy, he made his name working for the Koch brothers. Maybe anti-corporatist is just branding, but I do believe Bannon knows what he's saying when he espouses it, and I get the sense that many in the audience don't. But there, for a time, was a brief sighting of Bannon in the wild, many layers and all, until he skulks back into his cave and possibly pulls all the levers of power in this country. So on the show today, I go beyond that particular DC coffee clatch. I attended, through the miracle of a web feed, an entire town hall meeting. It was Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton's. He took a lot of questions and a lot more flack. But first, Nevada is another state where a Republican senator has said he'd hold a town hall meeting. One stipulation Dean Heller puts forth, no booing. All right, we don't know if that will happen, but if it does, we're certain who will be covering it. John Ralston, he covers all in Nevada, and he's now doing it in a bold new way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The Appalachian Dean of the Nevada Press Corps, it's accurate as far as John Ralston goes. It just doesn't go far enough. Now, for a long time, that was a subjective but very true statement. This guy knew everything about Nevada politics and was on all the great shows and wrote for all the good papers. But now the dean has, I guess, founded his own university. John Ralston is here. Hello, John. Hi, Mike. And tell me first, tell me about this new project and how it came about. Well, it's called the Nevada Independent. It's a, a nonprofit a news site that uh, has been in existence just under a month. Uh, I thought of the idea last year. I had uh, I've been on TV for about 15 years in various venues, and that ended. And I was kind of burned out on that. And I'd always wanted to run a news organization, so I thought about doing a nonprofit. Wanted to hire some young, aggressive reporters, I, I, all of whom have come to work with me. I have a great number two, and it's a very small operation covering the legislature in a, a different and in-depth way than has ever been done here. So, so far, so good, but it's early. Is this a reaction to Sheldon Adelson's takeover of the paper you once wrote for, the Review Journal? You know, a lot of people have brought that up. Uh, it, it, I don't think it's accurate to say that it's a reaction to, to, to Adelson's purchase of the RJ, but certainly a lot of people have seen it as that. I've wanted to do this for a long time, and just a lot, there was a confluence of events, and maybe that was one of them. And, and the lack of faith in the media and wanting to try to do something about that and just do something different in my own career. So I think there were a lot of factors, but that certainly wasn't the biggest motivating factor. Do you think without this new project, uh, news consumers in Las Vegas can get a fair shake, a uh, accurate description of what's going on in politics in their community? Listen, uh, journalism in Nevada has always been frustrating to me because it's such a great state to cover news, especially political news. We have our, not just because we're quirky, uh, but there's just a lot of great stories to do. And neither newspaper has ever, 
in, in southern Nevada devoted the kind of resources to do it, although the Sun won a Pulitzer in 2009 for an investigation of worker accidents and deaths on the Strip. But mostly there just hasn't been that kind of dedication. Now, the Sun essentially has receded, doesn't do much. It's enclosed in the RJ. Their website focuses more on other things, and they don't have that many reporters. And as you mentioned, uh, the Review Journal was purchased by Adelson at the end of the year before last, and it's uh, it essentially uh, has had a, a brain drain. Uh, a lot of people have left, Mike. A lot of really good reporters have, have gone because of, of, of what they perceive the atmosphere there to be. And so I'm hoping that people will start uh, clicking on the NevadaIndependent.com to get their news. I think a lot of people would subscribe to something with your name attached and your contribution attached. You have a big following. But what about the things like the nitty gritty of state legislature, state legislatures? For a long time, that was a loss leader among papers, and then the loss wasn't worth it to them. Um, I, I guess I'm not asking you, can it be financially viable? You are a nonprofit. But, you know, can your coverage of that be sufficiently robust given what we perceive as to be a lack of interest in that sort of thing? Yeah, that's the biggest issue. What you just touched on at the end there, Mike, is getting people interested in something that's very dry. That, that you know, when you think about that, three quarters of the population lives 500 miles away from where the legislature takes place in Nevada. For those who don't know, it's in Carson City, which is in northern Nevada, and Las Vegas is southern Nevada. So it's tough to get people interested uh, in it. So we're we're trying to do some different things to get people interested. People were trying to have a robust opinion page with a lot of different voices, uh, and, and we've invited just regular folks to write op-eds, and we've had some interest so far. It's difficult for the reason that you suggested, because people just aren't naturally interested in it. All right, let's talk politics. Why? What's your assessment? Why did Nevada, why did, sorry, I said it wrong. Why did Nevada not follow the trends of states that it has some similarities with those uh, industrial Midwest states? I don't, I think that Nevada really is a purple state. I think a lot of the voters really do have sort of conservative leanings. Perhaps the economy hasn't been hit as hard as uh, Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, but what's your assessment about why Nevada was part of the blue wall and those other states weren't? Well, I I think the explanation is pretty simple. You essentially had a political machine here led by Harry Reid that has been formidable for many cycles, Mike, and especially in presidential uh, years, and is able to capitalize on on, on a couple of things. Number one, the money that Reid was able to bring to the table to fund the operation, to register and get out voters. And then they took advantage of a two-week early voting period uh, before the election in which they just got tons of voters out to the polls and completely dominate the Republicans. And these are not, quote-unquote, independent voters. These are party-line voters, and they build up essentially a wall to head off any uh, bad turnout problems on election day. And they had such a huge lead going into election day that they were able to sweep essentially uh, all the way down the ticket in, in 2016 and Harry Reid's farewell. Yeah, I agree with that. I think if, I mean, this is too reductive, but if you want to look at the most important political player in Wisconsin, it's Scott Walker, and he engaged in uh, some versions of voter suppression. And then if you want to look at the equivalent in Nevada, it's Harry Reid. He did quite the opposite. He opened up voting. Yes, he really did. And they registered a ton of voters. And it started all the way back in 2008 when Reed, in a very calculating way, got Nevada early caucus status. They registered, I believe, 30,000 voters in one day in, in 2008. They've never been able to match that, but they've still done very well. 
by having same-day registration on the day of the presidential caucus, and the Republicans have just not been able to keep up. And even worse, the Republican Party here essentially is imploded, has no money, uh, and wasn't able to do much. Third-party groups have helped a bit, uh, but it just wasn't enough. Even in, in, in the year of Trump, the raises were closer, I think, than people uh, than Democrats may have thought. Hillary Clinton didn't win the state by as much as Obama, but she still won it. What does the lesson of Harry Reid and the fact that he ran uh, a really effective machine, which has become a dirty word, does that give you any insight as to the DNC and the debate they're having, sort of a debate between resistance and normalization versus tactics and strategy? You know, it all depends on what you want a party organization uh, to be. Reid essentially decided, and I've used this term before and I'll use it again, that he wanted to turn the party not into a cauldron of ideas where people get together and debate progressivism versus moderate uh, behavior, but but that it was essentially a legalized money laundering operation <laughs> where, where they would raise money and then funnel that to voter registration drives and candidates, that the purpose of a party is to elect Democrats. And so, uh, yes, to some extent, the election of the chairman of the Democratic National Committee now is going through some of that. So it's a crucible for the same kind of debate. Uh, and I think there are, quote unquote, establishment Democrats who are very worried uh, that, that the non-Harry Reid model is going to, to win out. Yeah, I mean, but maybe the Democrats they elect can be crafted in those salons of debate. I'll allow my show to be a wonderful blossoming of debate. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I think Maybe political machines should exist to get their people elected. My opinion. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. All right. Now give me the skinny on the thing I'm most fascinated by. Are the Raiders coming to Las Vegas? Yeah, you know, it looked like they were. And uh, I've written a lot about this, but more uh, along the lines of how much public money has been put forth for this, which is absolutely unbelievable. $750 million. It's nuts. Uh, but, you know, the, the, they had Sheldon Adelson as a partner. He was going to put in $650 million. Goldman Sachs was going to finance the deal. And now Adelson's pulled out. Goldman Sachs has pulled out. The Raiders still sound optimistic. They're going to find another partner. But, Mike, there are not a lot of people who can put $650 million uh, in, in a deal like Sheldon Adelson can by reaching under his couch cushions to find that kind of money. There's just not a lot of people. So I think they really want to leave Oakland. Uh, but, uh the question is, can they find the, the, the partner now? There, there's no one, it seems, in Las Vegas who is that interested right now. And maybe they can get Adelson to come back. But it seems fairly acrimonious to me. Yes. In a, uh, in a, in a three-way spat between Goldman Sachs, the Silver and Black, and Sheldon Adelson. I mean, they're all such sympathetic figures. You don't know who to root for. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. It's interesting. <laughs> Goldman, too, had to make a deal at the end because they, they initially said they were going to stay with the Raiders. And then they think... They looked at their uh, balance sheet and saw how much uh, that they dealt with uh, the sands on projects and decided that maybe they knew where their bread was buttered and dropped out. Yeah. Is this, by the way, is this conversation sort of represent and reflect the uh, sports section of the independent? Uh, this is pretty much the extent of it. Yes. <laughs> okay. John Ralston, he has for years and years covered uh, Nevada and Las Vegas politics and his new project, which intends to reinvent that pursuit, is called The Independent. Thank you so much for your time, John. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel across the country, elected officials are having town hall meetings, or as many of them have become post-festivist airings of grievance. 
There are several strategies for mitigating the barrage of incoming fire that a typical Republican might take. Book a hall that holds only a fraction of the anticipated crowd. Book it in a town far away from the population center of the state or district you serve. Fill the stage with other elected officials beside yourself who could wade in and deflect some fire or at least eat up some time. Or in the case of Virginia Representative David Bratt, do all three. And it still didn't work all that well. Some representatives, some senators have hid or scurried. Some have conducted town hall meetings only over the telephone. Eighth caller on the contest line, say the phrase that pays and we'll cover your pre-existing condition. But Senator Tom Cotton didn't use any of these evasive tactics. He held a town hall meeting in a Springdale venue that sat 2,000 and held the yells of what seemed like thousands more. Do your job was a popular cheer. So was the demand that the president release his taxes. At one point, the constituents demanded that Senator Cotton answer a simple question with a That demand came after a question from a woman named Katie McFarland, who identified her family as longtime Arkansans, defined them as consistent Republicans, and told the crowd that without Obamacare, she would die. She was among the more forceful members of the crowd, not just because of how compelling her story was, but how she, without going crazy, communicated a dire concern that the senator had a hard time wriggling out of. Cotton did his best with Katie and with other questions. At one point, he explained that the Senate couldn't just launch into an investigation of the Russians. It would take time. It would take checks. The Intelligence Committee has been investigating Russia and all of their malign activities to undermine confidence in our electoral progress. system well into last year, and that continued after the election in November, and it's continued for the last month. So we already, we already have a long head start. If you created a new organization, it would take probably at least six months to staff it up and do the background checks. This is... This is, this is simply the facts. But that opened him up to a pretty scathing put-down from a constituent. Didn't take six months to put seven Benghazi committees together. In 2009, Republican senators and representatives were kind of shocked by the passion and the turnout of their constituents railing against the ACA. They were fearful of being primaried. And that must have been the moment that at least some Republicans said, I've got to oppose this bill no matter what. Chuck Grassley might very well have been a Republican signatory to Obamacare, and with him, maybe Susan Collins or Olympia Snow of Maine, but the town hall insurgencies likely put an end to that. I don't know what the effect of these town halls will be. On the one hand, members of Congress must have known that all but those in the safest Republican seats have no good answer for what the replacement's going to be. Managing expectations was made that much harder by the fact that Donald Trump promised Americans something cheaper, better, and more efficient, also now with 94% more unicorns. For Cotton, who is up in 2020, I'm not sure how this town hall is going to play out. I'd guess that he went in knowing that he'd take his lumps, but believing that he could ride it out. And he tried to. He never got upset. He never got short-tempered. 
But on occasion, this just left him standing on stage, hands clasped in khakis and a button-down shirt, looking like an assistant principal waiting for the senior class to get a few cat calls out of their system. At one point, he just began reciting local high school basketball results. Benton. Benton beats Little Rock. Arkadelphia. Arkadelphia beats Benton. I'm kidding. Those weren't sports scores. That was him trying to find who drove the furthest so that he could give that person a question. But the crowd was having none of it. They began accusing him of wasting time and eventually demanded the microphone. Where is that microphone? The assembled definitely got their licks in. If we're so concerned about the deficit, why are we building a wall that costs 20 And then there was this one. Are you making the, the right decisions for these kids that are reading those textbooks while you are supporting the policies of a man who wants to grab women by the pussy? To a senator, no less. This was, though, overall, a necessary exercise in participatory democracy. And I think that if you played this event for other Republicans, especially somewhat confident Republicans, and show them that if they just don't blow a gasket, they can allow their constituents to vent, and they could have done their duty in a democracy. Though I'm not naive enough to think that that'll happen. Many senators just simply don't think that it's part of their job, having won an election, to have to face the electorate chanting, do your job. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, just producer, went to the town hall of Louis Barletta, representative of Pennsylvania's 11th district, and repeatedly assured the congressman they weren't saying boo, they were saying loo. Chris Brube, just producer, saw a missed opportunity to go to a town hall and get the senator to agree to a do my job chant. It's worth a try. Those senators were often quite capable. Steve Lichtai has just one question, one question for the senator. Will you vow to keep faith with the American people and plow Steve Lichtai's driveway when it snows? Do your job. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, promises if invited to a Dean Heller town hall, he won't boo, he won't hiss, he won't even adopt an expression that borders on withering. The gist. Follow-up question for Mr. Bannon. Is one of those things a dicky? Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>